Welcome to Straight Up Dog Talk, a new kind of podcast where no topic is off limits. We're bringing in experts and owners to have the conversations we should be having as a dog community. Each week, a new guest will share firsthand experiences, educational resources, or professional guidance to help you learn and grow along with your dog. You won't get one perspective here, you'll get them all, because every dog is different and every owner is too. You can follow along on Instagram, TikTok, and Facebook at Straight Up Dog Talk or by visiting www.straightupdogtalk.com. Tune in from any of your favorite podcast platforms. Welcome to Straight Up Dog Talk. I'm Em. I'm here again with Josh. Hello. And today's episode is going to be on outdated training methods. And we have Lauren with us today. How are you, Lauren? Fabulous. How are you two doing tonight? I'm doing pretty good. Ready, uh, ready to rock it. Love it. This is a super important episode because there are so many trainers out there right now and so many different modalities of training out there right now that I want to provide a good span of what's available out there, but I want to only provide what's healthy and good for the dogs. And the first thing that I want to talk about is how important certification is when you're looking for a trainer. So tell us a little bit about yourself, your certification, how you got it, and what that signals to people when they're looking for a trainer. Hi, I'm Lauren Sizak, owner of Sit Say Stella. We offer training and sitting services and the two go hand in hand. I found that as I was providing sitting services and training services that there was really a deficiency in both, right? So I would have a training client and they couldn't find a really good sitter or maybe I had a sitting client and they couldn't find a really good training client, trainer to support their services. So we really tried to provide holistic care inside the home, outside the home, and when you are and are not present. Um, and I actually started out as a corporate insurance saleswoman. I did that for almost a decade. And then I adopted Stella. She was supposed to be my perfect dog. And in a lot of respects, I would argue today, she's near perfect. I'm pretty happy with where we start. We are now, but that is not where we started. When I first got her, she was a six month old menace. She pinched a nerve in my shoulder within a week. I probably wanted to return her 10 times over that first couple of weeks. And it was complicated even further because I was still grieving the loss of my dog, Sammy. And the the paradox between losing a calm, senior, social dog with a really immature, hyper, super needy Catahoula leopard bully mix that I didn't know was a Catahoula leopard bully mix. And I probably would have never adopted a Catahoula leopard in New York City was a stark, stark contrast. And so I had no other decision but to learn how to train this dog. It was either give up or get going. And uh, you can figure out how that one turned out. 
And so I started training her. And I will say the way that I started training her with how I train her today is definitely different. And as I started training her, I realized I'm not that bad. And our trainer at the time actually wanted me to start working with clients. So I mentored under her. I started going through the process of receiving my certification. And I started sitting as a way of gaining experience. But funny enough, I also wanted a break from Stella. So I wanted to sit the easy dogs. Are you noticing a pattern here? I keep trying to get the easy dogs and I land with the difficult dogs. So it's like dating in my twenties. That's just me in general. I always end up with the hard dog too. Yes. So you too understand. So I start out the first couple of clients, the first client, he is biting at me, humping me. And now I realize today it's over arousal and it was hurting behaviors and it was leash aggression from shelter issues and stuff like that. Um, and today I could have worked on it with the dog, but then I was like, oh my gosh, this dog is so aggressive. And then the next dog, similar behaviors. We got some peeing, we got some resource guarding. So my friend who kept referring me clients, I said, all right, enough. This is getting out of hand. You have to refer me only easy clients. Like if I'm going to do this, it has to be easy. And she kept saying to me, all right, this is the one, Lord. I promise you, this is the one. And sure enough, every single time, they were a challenging case. And I think on maybe the third or fifth, I just decided, you know what? This is my shtick. And I became the, I became known as the sitter for challenging dogs that nobody else would watch. And that's how I got started with my sitting services. So just went and owned it. Not only did we own it, we made it our brand. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I kind of feel like that's the best way to do it because as a vet tech, I ran a pet setting and dog walking business. And those two things also go hand in hand because within clinic experience, I have knowledge on how to give medications like for diabetic dogs that not your average sitter would be able to do. So it was really beneficial for clients that had pets with special needs because I had the extra background. And I did that until COVID because for obvious reasons, COVID kind of killed that dog sitting business for me. And I had a puppy, Fitz. So it was just the right time for me to stop. But you're right. There is a very big shortage in people who are available to pet sit and train all over the United States. So people like you are really, really important. How long did it take you to get your certification? And it's a CPDTKA. Can you explain what that is? Uh, You have to complete over 300 hours of training. 75 hours of those can be shadowing someone. So I did 75 hours shadowing my mentor at the time. And none of those hours can be with your own personal dog. So they Hmm. have to be with all client dogs. They do not have to be paid clients. So it could be your friend's dog. It could be your neighbor's dog. 
I used a lot of my sitting clients. So all of my sitting clients got a ton of free training and, but it also worked because they were challenging clients. So they needed training anyway. And I also provided discounted training while, while I was getting my certification. I was very upfront about that. And, um, and I will say I probably completed the certification rather quickly. I did it in about a year. I sat for it in spring of 2023. Yes, spring of 2023. So I sat in February and I received the notification around April. And then you can now say that you're a certified dog trainer. However, and I want to put a big however on this because this is a discussion in the dog training community today that certifications are limiting to a lot of people, right? There is, uh, you have to pay for them. A lot of programs are super expensive. KPA, VSA, for example, all of those programs that are multi-month and you have a mentor and you go on site, all of those can be super expensive and cost prohibitive for the average person. So Certi- there's certifications and then there's also being qualified. And I I would say that you can be qualified and not certified, right? But the certification at a minimum lets the public know you've met certain requirements or minimums, but you can also have a certification and not be qualified. There are plenty of people with a CPDTKA or other things, and I would not recommend them to you. So there's this question of certification and qualification, and the two are mutually exclusive. Just a short note here, uh, the, the CPDTKA that we've been talking about is Certified Professional Dog Trainer Knowledge Assessed. But on, on the same point, when you were talking about like, you know, certification versus uh, versus actually knowing what the hell you're doing. I mean, that's in every certification. I mean, you you mentioned you had worked in the insurance field. I know plenty of people that they're certified. I wouldn't trust them, but they're certified. <laughs> Absolutely. And, you know, I don't know if I can... Oh. I mean, I'm outside of the insurance industry, but I, I may need it to fall back on. But there are some sketchy things that happen come renewal season on mm-hmm. those licenses. So, and also, I got to be honest with you, the tests that I took to be able to sell healthcare contracts to large com- large companies the test had nothing to do with that, right? It asked more about Medicare and life insurance. It didn't ask about self-insurance versus fully insured and the things that I actually would need to do on a daily basis in my job. It had nothing to do with it. There's, I mean, definitely a varying degree in, I think, a lot of things that are relatable to this. And this is exactly why we need to be talking about it, because I think that people have a really hard time figuring out who is a legitimate trainer, right? We have these people like Dog Daddy, who Lauren actually confronted in New York City in person, who are going around talking about how they're a trainer and they've been a trainer all their lives, but has 
absolutely nothing that shows that he's qualified to be a trainer and has proven history of abuse and the death of dogs on his hands and yet has this massive following of people who just because they don't know better or how to find the right kind of trainer have just kind of latched onto him because he's flashy and is Louis Vuitton and he's parading around the city with his dogs and giving training demonstrations and pulling these people into this this chain of belief in this system when he's really using outdated methods like Caesar Milan is another one that we can throw in there where they're using dominance and force and aggressive behavior and fear and dominance is not the way to train a dog that that is not respect that is putting an animal in an abusive situation so reaching out to someone like Lauren here we're bringing to this podcast a way for you to recognize what is healthy for you and your pet and how to build your relationship so on that point how about you talk a little bit about how to build a relationship with your pet and how to find a trainer that meets those same needs absolutely that's a great question a lot of people when they first a lot of people when they first bring home a dog whether you went to a breeder or you adopted they get so fixated on what bed they're gonna buy what bowl leash all those things i did the exact same thing right Stella got a cute little wild one bowl, matching harness set, the whole nine yards. Maybe they sign them up for daycare and they send, they start an Instagram, all of these things that realistically do not matter. And what is more important is to start building a bond with your dog, getting to know what they like. Do they like to sniff a lot? Do they like trash enrichment? Do they like licking mats? Do they like to sleep on the couch versus the sofa? Do they like fuzzy blankets? Do they like a heated blanket? I just learned this about Stella. You put a heated blanket anywhere and she is so calm mm -hmm. and, and she just loves it. Um, so now heated blankets are everywhere at my daycare. And a lot of trust comes from it's not about leash skills or what fancy enrichment toys you're giving your dog it's about if they say no do you respect the no and then before that do you even know how to read the no do you even know that they're saying no so when i walk into a client's home the first thing that i'm usually helping them understand and recognize is their dog is speaking all of the time. They may have called me because their dog is barking, but their dog was communicating well before the barking started, right? The barking was the tip of the iceberg. And as we start to give them alternatives to that barking, they can see that they were communicating that frustration all along, or you eat, it's so incredibly cool when you're working on what we call demand barking, but um, force-free trainers call connection-seeking behaviors, is when they start to realize they don't have to bark, that moment where they start to open their mouth and choose not to bark, it's 
so mind blowing when they make that connection of like, oh wait, I don't have to do that anymore. That I, there's a there's a choice here. So that's actually why. And to bring it back to my least favorite person, I don't know if least favorite because I can't dog that, but he's in the line. I made my company's slogan. Who needs a dog whisperer when you can have a great listener? Because when I started this, everyone was like, oh my gosh, you're like a dog whisperer. And I was like, um, no, I'm like me. <laughs> I'm my own thing, right? So I wanted to nail that home because at the end of the day, I'm just teaching people how to listen to their dog. Yeah, Artemis, it took us a while as she lays on the ground over there. Uh, she will just come and stare. That is, that is her, I need something. She very rarely barks, but she'll stare and we have to go through the list of things. Do you need to go outside? We have to ask at least three times, do you need to go outside for her to, you know, are you hungry? Do you need attention? <laughs> you know, and she like very quickly, I've only had her three years, but very quickly she has learned either through tone or the way that the we just repeat the same thing um when to respond to that um which is i mean i've never had a dog like that but every dog is different like i've had yorkies that they'll bark all day and all night but it's when they're quiet that you know they need something <laughs> that's really funny um and see you just said something that old me would have said, let me tell you everything you could do if you want to fix that staring problem. And I have had to work really hard when people tell me about their dog things and I just listen, right? We got to stick to the company slogan or motto. And uh, I've had to learn how to ask someone, are you telling me this just to tell me this? You just want to have a conversation. Are you asking me for help? Right. Because now my job is also people's daily lives. People just talk about their pets on a daily basis. Right. A lot of times my friends will be talking about their dogs and they just want to tell me about their dog. They're not looking for advice and the recovering people pleaser in me and the fixer wants to help them and say, Oh my goodness, I have just the knowledge and solution for this. And so it's something I still actively work on and I don't always get it right. So my friends that are <laughs> listening to this, no, I'm, I'm, I'm listening to you. I hear you. I know that I mess up sometimes. Okay. Um, but, and sometimes they even will say stuff like, I know I didn't do it right. Okay. Lauren, or don't, <laughs> I mean, I, I'm not looking for advice. I'm just sharing about my dog, but uh, I, I don't, I don't know. I, I guess I would want correction if it is harmful to my dog. If it is, is her staring until we acknowledge her harmful to her in any way. And maybe a professional would say yes for these reasons that I never would think of, you know, but I, I see it and I was like, well, that's actually a lot better than barking or, you know, marking or acting out, chewing, or things, chewing up. things. She doesn't do any of that. She just stares at us. <laughs> and not only does she stare, she has the most 
crazy side eye. Like she can turn her eye like all the way over into her peripheral vision and just stare at you from the side of her face. So you, you know, because she just, yeah. and this is, I mean, this is his dog. This is not my dog. I'm over here enough that I know her habits and I'm like, Oh, already wants something, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. No, it is not harmful to have your dog staring at you and people actually will train this and certain breeds will, certain breeds are literally bred to stare at you, right? So Aussies, Border Collies, they're going to be hyper fixated on your face if you tried to train it out of them. Uh that's like asking them to stop breathing. But other breeds, and I can't think of one right now, they're not focused on the face. So actually asking them to look at your eyes or the face is really challenging for them. And that's why a lot of dominance training is really difficult, right? Um, you will see a lot of dominance trainers super obsessed with eye contact and watching you and all this stuff. But I have found that when I'm working with dogs, one of the most popular pattern games and pattern games were developed by Leslie McDevitt. Highly recommend that everyone checks out her work. One of the most popular games that we use is the up-down game. And pattern games are a way for the dog to get into a nice meditative state. They're just doing the same thing over and over. So you put a treat down on the ground, they look up, you put a treat down, they look up, over and over. Now they may look off to the side at the trigger and that's okay because you'll notice they'll come back to the pattern and that's exactly what we want. It's it's giving them something else to do besides staring at the trigger, barking, lunging, pacing, whatever the behavior is that we're trying to reduce, right? And when I'm training the up-down behavior, a lot of times I will not get that eye contact immediately. I'll get kind of a halfway head being raised, but over time it becomes the eyes move a little bit more to meet my eyes, right? Um, but at first it may not look like that. And there's a couple of reasons for that, right? They may be over threshold, they may be overwhelmed, they may be too excited. The, the food level may be wrong. It may be too high. It may be too low. It's maybe I'm too new to them, right? There's a million things that could be going on. So if I were a dominance trainer and my criteria, and when I say criteria, right, what is the box that I'm trying to check? If my criteria was that the dog needed to meet my eyes and we needed to have eye contact, then that dog technically failed the task and I would, I should be issuing a correction and a correction in that situation would look like the trainer might pull on the leash so that the dog had to lift their head all the way up. And now I have to ask you, what is the purpose? What is the function behind that? Why are you so obsessed with that eye contact, what does it do for you? So in essence, what you're doing when you're training then is you're building confidence and you're building rapport with the dog versus physically forcing them to do 
what you want them to do. You're building trust. You're creating a relationship between you and this dog that you can very easily relay to the owner because they're watching it happen. When you're forcing a dog, like you said, by yanking up on the collar, or even I've seen trainers grab the, the snout and force the face up, or putting two fingers underneath the jaw and pushing up so that they re meet for that eye contact. That's an, I completely agree with you. I do not understand the obsession with eye contact. They're animals. Eye contact is not the same for animals as it is for human. It's a sign of respect to look someone in the eye when you meet them, when you greet them, when you're talking to them. But animals don't understand that. They're not humans. They don't communicate the same way. And so they don't respond the same way that we would expect them to or think that they should. And I think that's where a lot of people fall short and misunderstand that force-free training is very effective, but it's getting into the routine of it to see the results that's the actual hard part of it. Yes, and it's also realizing that at the end of the day, force-free or positive reinforcement training is not just about cookies or hot dogs or treats. It is about finding what is most reinforcing to the dog and also finding out what is most aversive to the dog, right? What are they going to avoid? Are they, do they really hate bass? Do they really hate going outside when um, it's raining? And that could be a piece of this puzzle, right? I just had a consult with a client where the dog was peeing inside after being pretty well potty trained for about a year. And they wanted to know, how do I fix this issue? And I said, well, we'll discuss it in the session. And they were like, well, but I want to know because I want to know if I should hire you or not. And I said, it's actually a lot more complicated than it sounds. And the person's like, well, isn't it just a potty training issue? I said, no, I need to get the medical history. Did this just start or has it been going on? That might let me know, do we have a UTI? Are we dealing with a bladder infection? Is there something that is causing the dog to be unable to control their bladder? Okay. Is there anxiety going on? Did someone join the family recently? Do you have a new pet? Did you just move? Did you change your routine? Is there a new dog walker? Maybe they don't like the dog walker. So they go out with the dog walker and they don't pee. And then they pee after the dog walker leaves because there's that relief. What is the context of the peeing happening? Is it happening when someone enters the home? Okay, that's appeasement peeing. Is it happening in the middle of the night? There's literally a million different scenarios. And I won't know until I get there. And I'm going to have you document all of this stuff, right? And the other thing that you said that I feel like isn't talked about enough, right? We said, what is the obsession with the eye contact and respect and all of this is to your point, dogs cannot feel respect. They can't be malicious and selfish and plot these really devious plans. And I would love to think that, you know, Stella 
really wanted to ruin my life when I adopted her, when she didn't want me to be able to leave her alone so I could go to Soul Cycle and she peed on my West Elm rug and all of these things that made me change my entire lifestyle. But she was just a puppy who was really anxious and didn't know where she was and she just needed TLC, right? Now, the other piece of this is I know that when I was training differently with Stella and I was a little bit more obsessed with control, heel work, right? I really was obsessed with her walking right next to me. I was at a point where my life was out of control. I had a lot going on personally, right? I had just lost Sammy. I had some strained familial and friendships. So that put pressure on the relationship with Stella she became even more important. And I put a lot of pressure on her. She's just a dog. She has four legs. (laughs) Pretty ridiculous, right? And so when I think back to where I was in that headspace, I was obsessed with controlling her because my life was out of control. And I empathize with a lot of people who choose compulsion. And when I met Dog Daddy, one of the things that stuck out to me was he seems really insecure and such a small person hiding in this big persona. But you kind of almost want to just say, it's going to be okay, buddy. Like who hurt you, right? Who hurt you that you're hurting so many dogs? And it's a piece that I feel like doesn't get talked about enough. I completely agree with that. Um, just for reference, we are going to share your socials so people can go and watch because you do have a video recording of you confronting Dog Daddy and they can see exactly what happened word for word. I'm not going to try to quote it or anything like that. I have watched it personally and, um, you know, you got emotional afterwards. And I, I think that it's really important to show that because like you said, you can tell he wears sunglasses, so you can't see his eyes. You know, he's got big designer clothing on that's very flashy. You know, two giant dogs next to him. It's all about the image, not really truly about the dogs. And there are things that the dogs are doing that are very obvious that they're uncomfortable and in distress. Their tails are down, their heads are bowed down. Um, you know, they're they're distracted, disinterested. There's a whole lot going on. So I think it's really valuable, anybody who's listening to this episode to go and watch that. On your point about not talking about things and, and emotions and having control over things, when I was working in the veterinary field, I also worked with a trainer who worked with protection dogs and police protection dogs. And he told me that the first rule of dog training is that, you know, emotions run down the leash. Whatever you are feeling, the dog is going to be feeling. And that is something that has always stuck with me. And I really tried to pay attention to when I was in the veterinary world because, you know, dogs are in a strange environment. They don't know you. They don't know the doctor. This is a not their normal routine. And I always tried to be very respectful of the owner and the pet and let the pet come to me and try to let the dog 
give permission, give consent to me touching them, to me handling them, to me, you know, putting my stethoscope on them. The smallest things make the biggest difference in how you interact with your dog. And people say, you know, you shouldn't be soft or you're being too careful or you're being too nice. Don't talk to the dog like that. There's absolutely nothing wrong with being gentle. And I think that's, again, something that this world just completely runs over in their monster trucks now. They don't worry about being gentle. They just charge into it, say whatever they want to say, and they don't care how it affects the other person. So again, emotions run down the leash. What you're feeling, the dog is feeling. And if you're not communicating and you're not finding that space between the two of you, it's never going to be effective. Yes. And I just I just want to be clear because um, there is a point that compulsion and dominance trainers like to make, which is anxious owners or guardians make anxious dogs. And that is just not true. So when we talk about emotions running down the leash, I think of it as more, I think what you, I think you and I are on the same page as if you're feeling frustrated that day, that's going to bleed into your training session, right? But I, as an anxious person, right, I have ADHD, depression, PTSD, and anxiety. I did not give my dog anxiety. She is anxious because she is a poorly bred Catahoula leopard bully mix who is under socialized, who spent six weeks of her critical socialization period in a shelter environment, made her way from Texas to New York and was plopped into New York City right around her second fear period, which whoop-de-doo, that's a nice little recipe for a pretty anxious dog. But I did not give it to my daughter. Okay. I mean, she's my daughter, but (laughs) adopted daughter in every sense of the word. And so if I'm anxious that day, what you can teach, and this is a pro tip for all my anxious people out there. If you are anxious, figure out what your anxious cues are, right? Do you sigh, hold your breath. Maybe you curse. I'm a cursor. You can admit it. It's okay. Maybe you (laughs) tighten the leash. What you can do is you can train your dog to think that all of these are positive cues instead of, oh, when she tightens the leash, every time something bad happens after. That's why your dog has picked up on your anxiety, not because you gave them your anxiety. So you know what you do? You sit at home, you hold the leash, you tighten it, you give your dog a treat. You say the F-bomb, you give your dog a treat. You say, get your dog, and you give them a treat. And it's really as simple as that. And I actually recommend everyone do that because um, you should make sure that all of these cues, like get your dog, stay away, no thank you, all of that stuff become positive things. Stella knows when a person goes, um, or anything like that, she just turns to me and she gets food. It doesn't bother her because she knows it's been reinforced. One of the things that you just mentioned now, which is something that I have really seen a lot of trainers talking more about lately is the training your dog at home first. 
and reinforcing that behavior in a neutral environment where they're comfortable. And that is something that I think a lot of people overlook. They automatically go to the dog part, not my choice, not my choice. Uh, they take their dog on a walk down the street. They train in the front yard. They take their dogs to a friend house that has two dogs that they've never met before. And they just expect their dog to behave because that's how they saw somebody do it on Instagram. And again, that's what we're trying to do here with this podcast is kind of just take that candy coating off and show that there is real things that are happening here and important things that are happening here and a lot of work and not all of it's good and not all of it's easy and it's frustrating and emotional. I can't tell you how many times I've cried or gotten upset because Fitz had a a crazy day and I couldn't get him to calm down or I was frustrated with his return rate with the ball or you know, any other various thing, Toby randomly decides to pee on the coffee table for whatever reason, just because, you know, and it's just been one of those days and I've broken down and cried about it because sometimes you just need to let that out. And that's okay. It's okay to do that. Like you said, you're not causing your dog to have anxiety or behavioral problems because you have emotions. Your dog's going to forget about that in 30 seconds. What your dog remembers is the repetition. So, like you said, starting in the home is a really, really great way to do it, whether it's through enrichment, like you said, licky mats or repetitive training on the leash with treats. There are so many things that you can do to reinforce that positive behavior that's going to take time and it's going to build a different kind of relationship with your dog, but you have to be willing to start from square one. It doesn't matter how far in you are. You have to be able to wipe the slate clean and start over. A thousand percent. And I will say that is another huge difference between force-free and compulsion is, and if you notice, that's something that dog dog daddy does. He hosts the training sessions in a facility where dogs are not going to be set up for success. So when he asked me, would you handle these dogs at one of my training sessions? And I said, no, it was because it's a manufactured session. It wouldn't be what I would do, right? It wouldn't be my own training setup. I would choose to do it a completely different way. So that's not a level playing field, right? You chose the rules, the turf, and I just show up, that doesn't really sound fair. But then again, that's exactly what a compulsion trainer does, right? They chose the turf and the rules, and they also forget to tell the dog the rules, which is always fun. And they don't set the dog up for success. Everything that I do with the dog is creating an environment where they're going to be successful. In my daycare, for example, just this past Last week, I had a chihuahua who is a stage five clinger with me. She's a little Velcro dog with me. And she is what I would argue the unlikely daycare candidate that you might suspect. But in my daycare, because it's for alternative dogs, so to speak, she's perfect, right? I can wear her. I have a little sack that I can wear her. She can sleep on my desk. I can carry her around with me. 
she's allowed to have more liberties than at a normal daycare. Then there was another dog who likes to be close to me, but doesn't need to be as close. And then there's Stella who would like to be in the same room as me, but we have an understanding during the day, mom's at work. You came to work with her, but you're not going to be number one. Okay. And we've, we've, we've gotten to this understanding and I'm really proud of her. She's really matured in the past month or so with daycare um, because it is, it's a give and a take with our relationship, but it, it goes back to that trust and that bond that I've built with her. I have been depositing into our savings account for almost two years. No, is it? Oh my gosh. It's almost, it's over two years now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I've been depositing into our bank account for over two years now. So she trusts that this is just temporary, right? And she, she can deal with it. So when it came to nap time, I set up everyone, everyone for success by having the chihuahua closest to me. She was able to sleep in my lap, on my desk, next to me. Then the next layer behind two gates so that the chihuahua felt safest was the next dog. And then behind another gate was Stella. And we were all in the same room, separated because that was what everyone needed to have a deep nap. A compulsion trainer, on the other hand, would stick everyone on a place bed, tether them, and yell at them if they got off, or stick them all in crates and leave the room and let them howl it out and figure it out. And I mean, it's just it's just not my shtick. That's not the kind of environment I want in my dog e- for my dog either. I feel like you're just adding stress to that whole situation, which again, I completely understand the level that you're on because I was an in-home sitter. I went to people's houses. I would take my dog, Toby, because I only had Toby at this point, and I would drop him off at my parents' house and he would play with their dogs while I was at you know somebody's house for a week or whatever, stay with my parents. And I would go live at someone else's house for a week or two weeks or whatever. And I would essentially take over their lives. And those dogs were always well-behaved and comfortable and just in general, a good experience to be with because they weren't removed from their environment. They weren't shoved into some place that they didn't understand. They could still go out their dog door and run around in their own yard. They had their food dishes where their food dishes were always at. And okay, they might be sleeping in the guest room with me instead of in mom and dad's room, but at least they were in the same house and they understood that their schedule wasn't gonna be any different. So there's definitely a huge benefit to having those kinds of experiences with your trainer and your dog sitter. My trainer came to my apartment, trained in my apartment. We went out and you know walked in the parking parking lot that my dogs went, you know, the forested area around the parking lot where they went potty normally. Those were the areas that we practiced in because those were the areas that we were comfortable in. I tried in my early days of having Fitz because he's so high energy taking him to the dog park, but I ended up breaking up so many dog fights at the dog park that, and he would just sit there. I would put him in a stay next to my friend and I would go break up the dog fight with this other guy that walked with us. And it just became 
this whole thing where I was spending more time breaking up dog fights and having arguments with owners who had been sitting, talking or reading books on their phone or whatever it was that they were doing and not paying attention to their dogs that nobody was benefiting from going to the dog park. So I'm fortunate now to have a really large yard and Fitz loves to play fetch. He doesn't even really like to go on walks. He'd rather be in an area where he is familiar and comfortable and we'll go outside and play fetch. And when I hire a dog sitter, you better believe she stays at my house. She knows how to play fetch with him. She doesn't try to force him on a walk. And she knows that she can sit on the back porch with Toby in her lap and Fitz will entertain himself with his ball if she needs to. And it just works out so much better for everybody. Yes. And you know what's so interesting in this next evolution of my sitting services? Because I used to be just like you. I sat only in people's homes exclusively. And that was by design because at the time, Stella could not have handled it. And it would have been a whole thing. And it got to the point where my mom was flying up watching Stella because Stella still had such a limited social network, which I can't believe I'm, it, it, it still baffles my mind that that used to be our life where the only person that could watch my dog was my mom. And this weekend, one of my sitters is going to watch Stella for the first time. And I'm not even going to be in the same state. I'm going to be in Jersey and she's just coming over for an hour. And I've already done this with a couple of other people. So I'm not even concerned. And she's going to watch her for my birthday next week. Love that for me that I was able to use my own services. And with this evolution of my sitting services, I used to think the only model that could ever work was in the client's home. And now I'm finding that there are the dogs that actually crave that social interaction, but in, in a, but in a controlled fashion, right? So in an environment like my apartment where it's going to be max four dogs or in one of my sitter's apartments where it's going to be max two dogs. But then there's also the other type of clientele with separation anxiety dog reactivity, maybe they're seniors, maybe they're injured, maybe they're sick. I also just had a situation where the dog just had too much activity for that week. And so they just didn't want to have the social model and they wanted that flexibility. So now I went from, okay, I'm only going to find sitters that are going to do in-home sitting. And it just so happened I could only find sitters that could only do sitting in their home with their dog to Overnight, I found my unicorn sitters that can do separation anxiety in the client's home. And now I have these two models. And so, and then I have my model that's completely different, that's more multi-dog and there's a trainer involved. And now we have this variety that doesn't exist in the marketplace, frankly, right? It's- No, you're right. Or you go to boarding or you're at a mini boarding, right? A sitter that maybe takes eight, 10 dogs, something like that. And so there's this now premium concierge service that we're developing. And I'm about to have seven sitters, which is insane to me. Um, and as I hear the client's stories, I'm now realizing exactly who the, I mean, I built the model without even knowing 
who the client was. And now that I have the client in front of me, it makes so much sense to me, you know, Um, where people are craving that social interaction for their dogs, or even, even my clients that always booked me for in-home sittings have converted to my daycare and sitting model because we've gotten to a place where with their training, where they're now like, you know what? We're ready to expand my dog's social network. This is the year. We're going to do it. And they did it. We're doing it. And it's so cool for us all to be in this journey of, okay, year one was everyone building up their human social network. And year two is building up their dog social network. So that chihuahua that I told you about, she went from me being the only person to who could sit her to now she's been able to meet four other people. And she just did daycare this week with two dogs. And she's going to do daycare next week with another new dog. And she's going to crush it again. Like that is so cool to me. I love training. I think that what you're doing is absolutely incredible. And I think that you're going to need to like trademark this and start spreading it across the United States because it really, there really is a deficiency. There really is a need for this everywhere. You know, when I quit pet sitting, that was the biggest struggle with so many of my clients. They, who do we go to? Who do we go to? Where do we go to? Uh, who do you recommend? Honestly, I didn't, I finally had a girl that came along and then I found another one. So, you know, I've been able to balance it out a little bit, but it really is hard. It really is hard. And I think a lot of people struggle with it. So if you guys have learned anything from this less, this episode, find a dog trainer who also pet sits <laughs> and find a dog trainer who uses positive reinforcement training. Lauren, I want you to come back on another episode and have a whole conversation with me about enrichment training and how you can work that into your regular training methods and how that really helps dogs develop, um, you know, their mental stimulation and how it also burns down their activity. Unfortunately, we do have to wrap it up for tonight, but I... Fabulous. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, it was incredible to have you. This was such an amazing conversation. I really hope that it helps people understand that there are better methods out there than what we were taught when we were younger. And that if you're going to own a dog, you need to step up to the plate. You need to take responsibility and you need to be able to work with your dog and not force your dog to work with you. So again, Lauren, thank you so much for being here and we will have you on another episode soon. Thank you so much. Have a great night. Thank you again for listening to Straight Up Dog Talk. We will be back next week with another episode. So keep your eye on the socials and you'll see what's coming up next.